Hello and welcome to Mixbus with me, Kevin Paul. This series aims to allow some of the best producers, mixers, engineers and other music industry people to discuss their careers and their approach to music. The success of this series depends on people hearing it, so don't forget to tell your friends if you like what you hear and remember to give it a five-star rating and please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, special offers and promotions. This episode is brought to you in association with KMR, the UK's leading independent pro-audio retailer and recorded in association with Audient and the ID44. It's also brought to you in association with FilePass, a file sharing platform built specifically for the needs of the audio industry. It allows your clients to hear your mixes in the way that you want them to hear them. Find out more at kpmixbus.com and follow us on facebook.com slash kpmixbus and at kpmixbus on Instagram and Twitter. Career of producer, mixer, programmer and songwriter Steve Dubb was born out of the underground dance music explosion of the early 90s and he has gone on to work with some of the most influential artists of the past 20 years. Uncle, Roots Maneuver, The Chemical Brothers, New Order, The Prodigy, Leftfield, Primal Scream, Orbital, Beth Orton, Moby and Underworld are just a small sample of the people he's worked with. Steve is a three-time Grammy Award winner and I've looked forward to this interview for a while. How are you, Steve? Very well, thank you. Nice to see you. Great to be here. How did you start in the music business? Okay, so I was uh, at school and uh, doing an A-level or two and a bit disillusioned with it. So I naughtily used to play, yeah, not go to school a lot. So I came back home one day and uh, got something called the Yellow Pages and looked up studios and uh, rang them all. Yeah, pestered them all and got some interviews and uh, so I was like 17 came up to London did a few interviews at like Good Earth and a few interesting studios like that and then went to a place called Radio Luxembourg which was in Shepherd's Market which was an interesting little sort of production studio and a little recording studio Yeah, and I got a job there as a runner um, and I used to do Things like, uh, there used to be a show called National Fresh, which was a sort of hip-hop show with this guy called um, Mike Allen. Oh, yeah, I remember Mike Allen, Capital Radio. Yeah, he to do Capital Radio. so he used to do this independent radio show that was sent yeah. around. And, um, yeah, so I used to record that with him. And then he sort of would have lots of American import hip-hop records full of swearing, yeah. which they couldn't broadcast. So I used to sort of edit that out for him. And instead of bleeping it, I used to sort of re-edit the track and reverse it, which he really liked. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. I'd do that, and then I'd have to run off loads of tapes and send them all out to independent radio stations to broadcast off a reel-to-reel, which I love doing. But they also had a little... I mean, amazing to think about it now, but they had this little 16-track studio tape machine yeah, and a little Neve desk, a little, I think, like... I can't remember what series Neve it was, but a lovely old Neve. Well, like a broadcast, like a... a no, broadcast, like a proper old... A proper old one. A bit like the one at Conk, so probably the 8000 series. Quite a big desk, then. Yeah, but a small, a small version, small version, not, not small sixteen channel channels, or no yeah, sixteen okay. channels, yeah. and it was yeah amazing little recording room, and was you know at weekends was just able to go in and record and muck about and start to enjoy, it. and I realised that's what I really wanted to do. Okay, so I think eventually I probably got sacked from there. At the time, you could do something called YTS, so I went to a YTS scheme, which weirdly was supposedly a sort of film composition sort of course. But somehow they could sort of, under that, you could go and do what you wanted. And I got a job uh, at a place called Conk, a placement. 
yeah. which you know well. Which we do know, yeah. Which was just, yeah, amazing, really, to sort of walk into that place and just see what was going on was, was just amazing. It was a great place, really, really vibey, buzzy place. It was amazing, and it was like, I think it was 1988, and I think pretty much the first session I walked in to do was the Stone Roses, so... <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It was, Basically, yeah. Right, well, obviously, you, I didn't, I was only making tea, but... Yeah, but know, still, like... Yeah, with John Leckie sitting there, it's like, wow. I had no idea what, you know, what situation I was in and how lucky I was, but... um I think they'd done a majority of it in Wales and then they'd sort of come to London to do a lot of overdubs. Yeah. So it was really interesting to sort of watch that process. Do you play? Are you a musician? Not really. Muck about if I need to. But I remember, you know, things like uh, for all the guitars, they would they would sort of print where they were at with the mix or the or the track onto a onto a little four track. And do you remember that piano room at the back of Conk? Yeah. Sort of, you know, John would sit in there with his guitar for days just practicing all the parts until he got them perfect and then come and record them and then they did uh i think they did quite a few drum tracks in there so amazing just sounded amazing and all the vocals they did at the desk with a pair of aura tones like masses of reverb no headphones and then just that whole out of phase thing to get rid yeah. of the get rid of the bleed i mean just yeah amazing you were there for a while and then did you meet george there George? yeah Holt? so i was assisting there and doing like lots of amazing sessions and then in the evenings uh, myself and George would muck about you know he had a he just bought an EMS and there was an SSL there so yeah we had a sampler then we had an S900 or an S950 yeah yeah and so you we started making tracks made a record yeah what do, well, do you remember what it was called yeah God is in the house it was called it was on a label called FFRR so we got a deal with Pete Tong Pete Tong's label yeah they gave us 10 grand so we bought a sampler Somebody at the studio had given us a little rain duck desk. And then, so in Clapham, where George lived, he had a garage downstairs yeah. and just set up a studio called Dada, which just, yeah, became a little thing. At first, it was just a, a few little synths and a little desk. And then this guy, Steve Travell, turned up with a big AMAC desk and a Studio tape machine. Okay. And suddenly it was a studio, you know. When was this? This would have been what? 90 yeah i guess 92 maybe 92 okay yeah so that's like the real explosion of dance music i guess lots of little labors in london so there was a shop called zoom yeah i remember um, in camden i made some other records with with friends and sort of got them signed to that label and then through association with that label i met someone called billy nasty he was a dj yeah i remember and he and i started you know making tunes together and we had a band called Vinyl Blair, which was signed to Hard yeah. Hands. <laughs> which Hard was Hands Leffield's label, Leffield's yeah. label, yeah. So, um, you know, that all those interesting things started to happen from that. And because we had this studio, you know, a lot of the work started to come through that studio. Right, okay. And, and you were at this studio, you were engineering, obviously. Or were you programming? Were you just like, it was because it was a general... Mucking about. Yeah. Learning, really, yeah. without knowing it. You know, sleeping what? under the desk, playing. Really. You were right in the zone there. You were just in, in that Just place. obsessed with it, yeah, yeah, every day, all day. Yeah. Stoned and happy, you know, just making, mucking about, really, playing. Yeah. Which I think is the best way to learn. For sure. And not loads and loads of gear. I mean, I remember in Conk being sort of overawed by everything. But then I guess through that process of assisting and doing recalls it's a really good system for actually learning because as you're sort of documenting stuff and writing it down you start to understand why people you're working with have done certain things yeah and, and, and patch base and you understand patch how patch very work. much so yeah a really important part of it i yeah. think even now in a laptop having that 
structure in your head. Yeah. Signal really flow. Helps. Yeah, totally. Signal flow is really important. And, and one of the things people don't really learn on a laptop is signal flow because they don't understand how things are linked. And gain structure back and then was structure. really important then for yeah. hiss and things, obviously, because it was tape and so much stuff and, you know, gates and expanders trying to suppress it a bit. Yeah. So, like, seeing some people, like, very conscious of clipping. Yeah. And then other people that just, you know, weren't and making really exciting records. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's interesting. In what way? What, so what, what, that, that sort of... Just more the sort of pop mentality. approach. Well, yeah, literally, Renegade Soundwave, bands like that, where yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. They've come in with a multi-track with 24 samples laid up, and they, they've done the whole arrangement on the SSL. Then, you know, the guy, Gary would go in and do the vocal, and they'd make this amazing record in front of you, and you're like, oh, fuck, that's amazing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wow, you know, with, with Flood they were doing it, you're like, wow, this is just genius. Like, and tuning all the samples through weird old harmonizers, all clunky gear, you know, like, like an old H910 to yeah. tune brass samples and stuff. And is that where you learn or got your ideas from in terms of your own production? Is, is, I think you, that's where I did. Did you absorb I, a lot? You I absorbed, you absorbed a lot. A lot I made a decision that that's really, really kind of what I liked to do. That kind of music, more unusual. Well, I suppose not. Uh, uh, yeah, I suppose just more unusual in terms of the way it's put together. Um, which at the time, I suppose sampling was fairly new, and it was like mm. you know working with bands in one room and then working with samplers in the other room. You're like, wow, this is. And you kind of gravitated towards the electronic sample yeah. thing. I think a lot of the time as well, at the time, there were people doing both. You know, there were yeah. very much that sort of remix culture was emerging where you'd get a band like, I don't know, that Petrol Emotion or something. Yeah. And if somebody would come in with a sampler and, you know, get loads of loops up and beats and do a really interesting remix. Yeah. Which was literally, you know, a piece of tape with some Simpty on it and a sampler running. And you take the vocal. Take the vocal and some bits of guitar <laughs> and whatever people were doing, yeah. How would you define your style of, of work? Like, if someone says, "I want Steve Dub to help me make a record," what's what's the pitch? What's what's your what, what can they expect from you? I suppose it's like everyone. You just try and adapt to the situation and, and help them out in areas that they need, which I guess gets easier as you get older because you've perhaps got more relevant experience <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So I guess it's that thing of somebody coming in now and going, "Well, you know, I want to mix this record, but I'm not quite sure." what's lacking and then i think sometimes just by starting to work on it the shortcomings are, are revealed and it's not until you actually start to mix the tune sometimes that you hear it yeah so a lot of the time i work with this guy called pablo who uses lots of samples and we'll you know the, the rough mix will sound vibey and interesting because it's all kind of crunched together yeah and as with so many times you know you start to sort of deconstruct it and you're hearing flams and you know things that mm -hmm. and and yeah it's, it's an interesting process because i think sometimes when you leave it in that kind of homogenized state you know the thing of like when you're working on a drum machine or a sampler the stereo out sound amazing yeah but when you split it all out it sort of loses something loses the loses the connect definitely yeah yeah and how do you make decisions as to when to keep something like that and when to dissect it well, exactly. Yeah. What? I, I always, well, how, how do you make that What sounds best, really? Because sometimes really? I think if you, listening and going. Yeah, they sound great at the NPC. All right, I can't turn the snare up, but they sound brilliant. But who cares? It sounds if it's right. I think so much as well. When you're making records, what's wrong sometimes actually makes it right. So if the hi hat is a bit weird and a bit loud, yeah, 
that's actually what is making that groove exciting. When yeah. everything's too correct, sometimes it can sound a little bit stagnant, especially now when it's so easy to sort of make everything very refined with computers mm. yeah. and everything's very sterile and digital anyway. Getting that sort of analog wrongness, or not wrongness, but it, you know, incongruities back in and yeah. dirt. I mean, that's often what I'm trying to do: take clean things and make them sound old and dirty. And how how do you do that in the modern world? How how are you personally adapting to that? I guess it depends where you are. If you're in a sort of studio where you've got access to that gear, um, then like that. And then if you're in a situation where you got your laptop. Same mental approach, I suppose, but just using plugins, you know, or whatever. distortion or saturation. Anything. Yeah, or... there's so many around, aren't there? You know, yeah. like cassette plugins or okay, you know, the UAB Find stuff. Your emulator. Or yeah, well. anything really. Yeah, just give it some attitude. Sticking a load of hiss on it, seeing that, and then mixing that in with the compression. I don't, you know, there's just, I suppose, all those things that you pick up by working in a studio. Yeah. You know, if if you sometimes if you sort of take those things and go, well, why why did it sound so good sort of crunched onto tape yeah and you like, you try and sort of recreate that process sometimes yeah so perhaps putting a distortion before you compress the track you know before you compress the vocal yeah so you can drive it a bit more into the compressor and you know although you're not aware of it being massively distorted it's given it more of an edge somehow i don't yeah. i don't know you know you know it's just i think those processes that you come across in a studio sometimes by accident yeah are, are, are really sort of interesting and sort of valuable to hang on to just in terms of what you do in a computer sometimes but, but it's difficult isn't it when you i mean particularly if you if you haven't grown up with those processes to reverse engineer it to yeah. sort of try and identify when listening to maybe records that you've made for instance yeah like, like why does an otis redding vocal sound like it does or yeah. you know what what was the process in that recording or the beatles or yeah are you so Maybe not now, but you would you have done a lot of that reverse engineering? No, just muck about. Just literally mucking about, grabbing stuff, going, okay, you know what, Let's. Try, oh, this is an interesting box. Let me put something through it and see what it sounds like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, or this is a synthesizer with an audio input. What, yeah. What do these put drums sound, sound through like? Play, through play it, the filter through it and play yeah. with the filters or the oscillator or whatever. And I guess as well, when you're young and a bit less knowledgeable, knowledgeable about sort of what's technically correct... You know, you're using things that aren't impedance matches and stuff, and but so there's loads of buzz coming out of the synth, and the drums are going through it much too hot, but they <laughs> sound cool. Yeah, I think everyone can say that some of their great records, if we actually listen to some of them, they're riddled with technical mistakes. Definitely, I mean, but all great records are, I think. You know, it's like, and, you know. and like, let's face it, if you were making records in the seventies, you weren't worried about the calibration of the of the desk and the meters would have been like all the way like in the red and, and no one's going oh actually you need to turn down the stereo bus because totally <laughs> you need to turn that stereo bus because it's distorting it's like fuck it sounds great sounds amazing yeah you know you're coming back off tape and it's i mean that's the thing as well you're always going to tape back then so even at conk i remember you know we had, it was always there was an atari tape machine there that was the thing i think you're always going to half inch and it was always being checked off half inch yeah Eventually yeah. it became DAT, but they very much had a sound, those machines, yeah. which was part of the sort of finished sound of the record. Yeah. You know, and the SSL compressor as well had a big part of it, so... Are those things that you still try to emulate in your mixes today? Structurally, I suppose, yeah. I would quite often use, like, the UAD tape machines and stuff on a mix bus. Yeah. They definitely put it into a certain space. Yeah. I think if you want to make a record with huge subs on it, they don't always work. But if you're sure. trying to 
do that thing where it's contained and things are the sort of are a certain size, then they work really well. As, you, as soon as you try and go beyond those and sort of make, I don't know, you know, big massive kicks and stuff. Yeah, although, although you know, if you were making dub reggae, but they were modifying everything as well to do oh, really? that stuff. Yeah, in, yeah. There's a studio in Croydon called Arrowa, the Mad Professor's place. Oh yeah. You know, he he used to work for Soundcraft, and he he still uses his Soundcraft desk that he's modified, and he has a channel that he's tweaked that is the bass channel. You know, he has oh, the drums fantastic. in the same place against the wall, really dead. Sound mad in a room, but you listen to him in a room, and they sound amazing. Yeah. And he bought an SSL and didn't like it, put it back against the wall and kept the sound craft. <laughs> That's great. And again, he has the tape machine tweaked in a certain way, certain channel for the kick, certain yeah. channel for the bass, all kind of... All the bias. All the bias and, uh, is yeah. different. And it, and it yeah, he doesn't... I, I seem to remember, like, he doesn't com- even compress the bass going to tape. It's all done... Through the machine. Through the machine, yeah. Yeah, wow. You worked with Roots Maneuver. I did, yeah. How, how did that come about and... So that what, was again. What were you doing with him? That was through my manager at the time called Lisa Haran, who also managed Leftfield. Yeah. And also helped run this label called Hard Hands. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, you know, started working with him. Again, through that little studio called Dada we had. Okay. So he just, yeah, we'd come in and just, yeah, do a track a day, really. Had some ideas. His little boxes. Lay down some vocals. Had an amazing old, uh, I can't remember what the mic was called. You know, the one where it's got the sort of lollipop on top, the old Neumann. We're doing a track a day, as I say. So we did, we did an album, and then they made another album out of all the sort of unused demos as well. Yeah, a lot of them weren't even mixed really. It was like get the track up and record the vocal, and then that was. Were you writing the backing tracks for that then? No, he was, and then I was writing some, sort of helping him. It was a bit okay. of both, yeah. And so he'd come in with some sample ideas, or yeah, he'd come in with his. Uh, I can't remember what the box was. It's this amazing little sort of boss sort of groove box. Okay. He'd, and you'd have a beat in there and a bass line and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, the little drum machines. Some yeah. small little drum yeah, machines. I can't remember what one it yeah. was. It was a cool one. It had some good sounds in it. Yeah. And then you yeah. sort of add your little bit of... Yeah. Dubness. Yeah, whatever. Some tracks more, some tracks less. I'm th- I think that's the same with anything. You know, same with something like Chemical Brothers as well. There are some tracks where it's just a kind of mix, and then there's other tracks where it's a total... You know, we end up totally reconstructing and rebuilding it. Which has changed over the years anyway because of the way we work, but yeah. it's always like that, I think, with tracks. Some tracks you end up doing far more than others. Let's talk about uh, the, the Chemical Brothers. How, how did that relationship come back? Because you've worked with them pretty much from day one, right? From, yeah, like second or third track they did. Yeah, so again, through Dada and oh, through the same okay. connection. So Leftfield asked them to do a remix of a track called Open Up. Yeah, with Johnny um, Lydon, yeah. Yeah, and so because I worked in a studio and the studio was there they booked me in a studio for Tom and Ed to come into so they came in we did the mix went really well and then I think they said oh you know we're doing some tunes they just got to deal with um, Boys Own I think yeah. Junior Boys Own you know would I be up for doing them which of course I was and then yeah we just we started that's a, a relationship that's what how many years now it's over 20 odd years right 25 years I 25 years because yeah. they're just releasing yeah, Surrender. Surrender again, 20th anniversary. Yeah. So that was 1999, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah. I think we started working in about 94. And again, that, you know, a big part of that sort of studio was just the fun of having all that mad gear to put stuff through. So there was an EMS in there, there were some Oberheims, there was a little sort of Oberheim 4 voice. Yeah. Just great, you know. With the Chemical Brothers, are you taking an active part in the writing, or are you? is it just... Not really, it's more about... 
I mean, as a, it ch it's changed a lot over the years, the, the process. So yeah. early days, especially like the first album, Tom and Ed used to come in a bit more with stuff a little bit less developed. And then we'd sort of, I suppose, develop it and finish it more in the studio. Yeah. Whereas now they have an amazing studio of their own, yeah. uh, full of the most insane gear. So he spends a lot of time on his own now, writing and getting all that stuff together, and then it goes down, and they sort of they get the record in a in a more finished place. But having said that, we still then sometimes completely rip it apart, and we always, always, always do a mix that's the sort of the straight mix, and then we go mad on it, and I just for an hour or two or three or however long they can bear, I just <laughs> destroy it. The dub mix. Yeah. Yeah. And then bits of that stems from that sounds from that end up on the main version. So yeah. it might just be a mad AMS going on in the background of a, of a drop or something. Yeah, yeah. But that'll get recorded. And we, we've, we've worked a way now of getting all that stuff so that we can record it. And it's not always the mix recorded with some lunatic like me going mad on it. We're just recording the element we want out of the mix, whether it be the delay spins or the reverb smashing off a snare or the yeah. AMS. Use an AMS a lot, a 1580. The old that's, delay? Yeah, that's a really, really big part of that sound sure is that but where your name come from the the dub mix it, because that's what people used to do a lot didn't they that you do the main version then you about do yeah the dub mix yeah which was like turn off the vocal and like just go crazy on the instrumental is which that where you, your, your name comes yeah from? i think so and the love yeah. of doing that came from again back to conk like when i used to do the uh, assisting and do the recalls yeah everyone would go home and your job was to then stay up for two or three hours and document the session yeah yeah but i used to just used to muck about with the tracks as well so sort of without them knowing sort of you know turn off all the vocals normally and guitars and then just do like some weird version of the track where i distorted all the bass and drums and fucked about with it and put, compressed the shit out of it and yeah, stuff because i was listening to things like uh, i think probably fantasy fm at home and um you know all the early sort yeah. of acid records and amazing sort of like klf records and stuff at that time, music-wise, certainly electronic music was was pretty rock and roll, wasn't it? I mean, it was literally anything goes, and, and there wasn't these predefined genres for a start. No, there was no trance house, or it was just house music. That came about quite quickly, music. though. I think as soon as clubs needed to sort of market their nights a bit, then yes. Yeah. So by by yeah, definitely by ninety. Well, to my knowledge, anyway, the, the, the nights were having themes like early 90s. I mean, I think I did before. There were sort of certainly not as many genres as there are now. No. But the thing with doing those sort of records um, was that, um, yeah, it was again, it was just sort of the idea of playing and enjoying and being in a social situation where people that actually were your friends and having a nice time together rather than yeah. now where you're sort of sitting on a laptop on your own. You know, they were always all those records because it was always in a studio. It was always a social situation. It was always a collaborative situation. It was always working towards a point. So you'd be like, right, we've got 12 hours in a room. You know, it's 10 a.m. Let's try and start printing the mixes by nine o'clock. And you always had that end point. Yeah. And it was always a really good focus point of the day to try and get finished by then. Yeah, the deadline is a good thing, isn't it? really was the deadline is well it still is i mean you know just doesn't exist so much anymore well we've all worked on those projects where there's no deadline and you just think it's squeezing the life out of everything because you know the deadline as you say encouraged you to finish it and you'd have to let go of it yeah at 10 in the morning there was somebody else in the studio and you just have to go okay 
how it is right now is how it's going out. And there was an excitement to that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. I remember being in situations in rooms where there's, you know, two people on the desk doing fades and yeah. pans, and I'd be on a sort of half inch flying in backing vocals because there was yeah. no room on the multi track for it. Somebody else was doing other stuff, and it was, you know, it was the, the it was idea exciting. that five people in a room were coming together to make to print this mix. That and there was also I remember as well, like when you, you know, a bit later on when you kind of get a get a job and you go, all right, I'm going to townhouse, and you kind of. It would put you in a sort of slightly, not nervous, but you'd be like, right, I've got to go and, you know, I've got to go and do my You've best. You've got to go perform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. a really nice feeling. deliver. And I suppose that slight nervousness was really good as well. Kept you on your toes, mm. for sure. And and also, getting all that equipment to work. Which you often did. In harmony. Like sitting around getting a maintenance engineer down to get it to work. Interesting how people would think on their feet, though, in those situations. Yeah. I remember, like, uh, yeah. one time someone had got a remix to do. I think it was someone like Nelly Hooper, and uh, he'd been sent a multi-track with no sync reference, no tempo reference, nothing. Just had code that wasn't related to anything. So he uh, selected a couple of tracks to delete, you know, like, uh, I don't know, a shaker or a code or something he wasn't using. Tuned the multi-track down half speed, so a 30 eps tape down to 15 eps, and then manually played a cowbell in on a track as tight as he could, Wow. For the whole track. Put the tape back to 30 yips, fed that into an SBX 80, is it? Yeah. You know, that old Roman box. And that spat the sync out for the samplers. <laughs> Brilliant, you know. You mixed the record for maybe? Did. Did you do that here? No, I did that in a studio in Forest Hill, which had a nice little SSL desk in it and stuff. What was that like? It was good. You know, obviously working remotely with someone like that is... You uh, did that all remotely? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That works quite well these days, doesn't it, remote mixing? Or for it the does. most part. For yeah, the, definitely. For the most part. Especially when, you know, someone like that, they've, they've produced it very much in a way they like and they've recorded lots of things in a really interesting way, like tape delays and, yeah. you know, there's lots of cool stuff going on on the, on, on the session. So it's not like you're sort of stuck for, for, for finding things to make it work. It's all, it's all sounding pretty cool anyway. How did you approach some of the songs with, with regards to mixing? What's your starting point there with those, you know, with a track, with a, with a particular song like... I don't know, I suppose I just guess I just start enjoying it, really. Listen to it, like it, enjoy it, start to understand it a bit. You know, which is very hard to do in eight hours sometimes or 12 hours. Yeah. That's why it's nice to do albums, because you can then go back over tracks and go, oh, no, I get I get where that fits with the other one now, and maybe go back and apply some of the things you've done on some of the other tracks to the sort of other tracks. Yeah, because as you mix the rec an album in the old days, you'd always go back to the first two or th first exactly. two or three tracks. Yeah. Because you'd got the vibe by about track three or four. Or they'd also do this thing where they would record the drums in three or four days and there was a drum sound. So once yeah. you'd got the drum sound for the album, that was pretty much it, you know. Yeah. Which obviously doesn't happen so much now. Are you all in the box now? Depending on the project, depending on the budget, depending on the studio. Both, really. Yeah. What are you using? UAD, lots of UAD stuff. And then okay. plugins, I suppose, just whatever whatever is on the revolving conveyor belt at the time. You know. <laughs> and then you did the Orbital. Yeah, I worked a bit with them, so they're next door. That's yeah. good fun. Yeah. What are they like to play with? Great. I mean, very obviously, loads of analogue synths in their room. Yeah. And it's all very, very analogue. Does that take you back to the days of Dada? It does, and it's nice to sort of you know, work on stuff where there is noise and hiss and grunge and distortion and, you know, it's good. That was, again, that was just mixing. That's mixing. Although, obviously, mixing can entail 
doing things that uh, yeah you know mixing is a big big thing isn't it it can just be literally levels and it can be changing so much depending on how far people want you to go and i think that's the difficult thing sometimes is you can you know you can go mad on a mix and then terrify people <laughs> it's like what the fuck have you done like what though can you give me well you know i suppose you just with saturation and compression and right, okay. you, know, you can completely reinvent someone's drum track if you're not careful yeah if that's what you feel and obviously if they are aware of what you do then they probably do expect that sometimes and it's always very easy to sort of bring it back was my be expecting no to be honest with him i didn't wasn't changed that much what was interesting with him is that you know he was doing lots of things on a sampler where he wasn't quantizing stuff so there'd be loops where there were flams and things which is cool we had a look at a few of the old moby stuff when i worked at mute and a lot of his things were like you said earlier where when you put them all together they all work but when you separated them out you were like that loop doesn't sound like it's in time and then there's flams and loops were out slightly out but the the, the sum of the parts produced this incredible track and, and it's got more charm to it as well oh, a lot more charm a lot more charm and as i think i try and resist that temptation now to sort of tune and quantize everything because for right. so long i would do that you know take some drums put them in recycle or whatever chop it up make it tight and then you'd think it was better but i think oftentimes actually if you're with an engineer's head focusing on the drum track but actually most people are listening to the vocal and they don't really care about that weird little hi-hat that you're obsessing about yeah <laughs> and I think a lot of the time as well, I'd sort of mention it to him if I saw, and he'd be like, "No, man, just make it work." So I'd side chain it or do whatever yeah, to duck yeah. it, and it's just a different aspect of controlling it, I yeah. suppose, rather than going, "Well, I must quantize it and sort it out." A lot of people get sucked in by that, though, don't they? A lot of people, especially spend... with a laptop, because you can yeah. see it. Yeah, and that was the thing with the studio. You could, you know, all you could see was faders and meters. You could never actually see the waveform, really. Do you think that changed the way? people made music oh definitely yeah and sample libraries definitely i mean you know we always used to have decks set up in the studio and and cdjs but mainly decks and people would be bringing records in and you'd be sampling them that's if you're making that kind of record that's what you'd be doing you'd be finding a kick off something or a snare or yeah. a hi-hat loop i remember the time when i worked with leftfield in the studio actually and for the first two hours of the day they'd just play music and paul would always have records full volume like literally in the studio he'd have a bag of records every day and you'd sample bits off it yeah and they'd always yeah. sound brilliant or you just you play know. records to get into the vibe yeah you know of oh, we're doing a remix today what we're doing how we're going to make it current or you know this is what i you know whatever i wanted to sound like or this is the place that i wanted to take it and he'd spend two hours literally just blasting tracks he'd be thinking yeah it's a great way to start the day it is i think you listening know. to music is really important yeah Especially what? in a space you don't know, that's the best way to learn a room is to listen to music you like. What sort of stuff do you listen to outside of the studio? Do you listen to any music? I do, yeah. All sorts, really. I kind of, um, yeah, changes all the time. Also, uh, depending on who I'm working with, I might try and get a bit of an idea about what they like by listening to music yeah. that they like. So quite often if I'm working with someone, I'll ask them to send me a playlist or yeah. some examples yeah. of tracks they love. Yeah, or even pictures or, you know, anything. If Anything to sort of identify the sort of aesthetic of what they want i think is really useful in the sort of in the shortest time possible because obviously if you've only got two days with someone before you do anything really it's important to try and understand what they actually want yeah. from what from the process yeah. so i think actually sitting down and talking for three hours and listening to music is a 
a really valid thing to do. Yeah, you know? for sure. Even if you've only got 12 hours, if you go into, in, into the actual process with much more understanding, you know, you can achieve a lot more in four or five hours than you can in 12 hours just really not knowing what you're trying to do, you know. Obviously, right is a, is a with mixing, is a strange term because it's like, I think with most records, there, there could be 50 different mixes that are... Uh, right. That are right, yeah, or wrong or whatever, you know. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Id idiosyncrasies in mixes are often what make them work. And when you do sort of do the mix that's really polite and correct, it's just like, man, it's a bit boring now. Whereas the one where the vocal's doing something a bit weird or a bit mad or the, the bass drum's too quiet, I don't know, you know, just all those things that people talk about in classic mixes, like Heroes or something, where it wasn't until they turned a kick town 10 dBs, I think yeah. it was, that, yeah. the, that the mix came together. I think all those things are still very valid today. Sure. And do you, do you try to bear that in mind when you're mixing? Yeah, try not to worry too much about um, if things are a bit odd sometimes. Because if you're enjoying it... That's the main thing. Is that where you try to latch on that? You try to separate that from yourself. Yeah, try, separate try yourself. not to worry about it too much and think, well, that's working. That's why I like printing stems and, and committing to things. Because I think once sometimes you've printed it, you're, you, all right, you're still maybe thinking about the sort of level of it and perhaps attenuating frequencies in it a little bit but yeah. you're not you know running eight delays and reverbs and i don't know just for me for my mental process making stems really helps so we're with which with with chems that happens a lot we make stems all the time oh really what well, as you're working because obviously Absolutely. yeah so obviously. often we'll just work on drums he'll just have some cool drums and we'll mix the drums in january right and then by november the record's finished and the drums are a stem we mixed a year ago ah i see so you, you're constantly much more of a collage approach, really. Yeah, yeah. You're building and building and building. You're not just leaving everything until the last minute no, for the, for the sound not. of the track. No, because I think often with someone with producers like that, in order to move forwards, especially with more sort of club oriented music, once you get the sort of the driving sort of groove, drum aspect and bass bass aspect of it, you know, often that's a very big part of the track. Yeah, and sure. then they're maybe looking for sort of melodic or vocal ideas to go over the top. But that might not come until later. Well, definitely. I think, yeah, like with certain tracks, I know that the way they came about is they found the sample and then they would chop up the sample into someone else's track. Like, so they just find an acid tune they liked, chop their sample in, do a complete re-edit, play that in a club and realise that, that there was something special happening with that sample or that moment. Come back from that and go, right, you know, can we use the sample? Yes. And then build a track around the sample and the idea. I guess that DJ mentality. Yeah, yeah. Of going, sure, right, yeah. I've made an edit. Oh, it sounds cool, but I want to use that Hey Boy, Hey Girl sample. Now I need to write a track that oh, has a... Yeah, has... That's an awesome track. Man. But it started out definitely with, with them, I think, editing the sample into some other track. Into a, into a, just a, another person's yeah. instrumental track or something. Yeah, and then yeah. Trying it out and say, oh, yeah, that works really well. And did obviously, do they get the clearance before they develop it or they just... No, because they know the idea. The works. idea, and they'll just go to the legal people and say, "Right, okay, you got to go and sort that out." Much more so now. You have to sort it out. I think a lot of the time now as well. Um, yeah, replays and stuff. So on on the last album, you know, there's lots of actual replays, and there's this guy that does them. It's just amazing. You send them, you send them the sample, and then you can use elements from that. They become royalty free in terms of publishing. No, they become uh, they become the 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 mechanical becomes free so you still right. pay publishing but you can 
Okay, but you can use the you can the, use the sample the sample yeah okay, you as can opposed use to, well you can use the sample sometimes anyway but it's then you've got to work can out be really expensive can be very expensive yeah yeah or the label doesn't exist anymore right and you've got to find the lawyer that owns it yeah and equally like when you uh, if you replay it or have it replayed you get quite often access to the sort of separate elements so if you only want the vocal you've got you know you've got bits of the vocal you can use okay or the yeah. bass line or the drums or whatever. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, with the replay, it's only ever an approximation. It can be really good. Some of them turn out really good, yeah. yeah. When you're mixing, how do you start navigating your way through the mix? I guess it depends how technically I sort of was involved in a recording. So with... So let's like, say you've not been involved in the recording at all. Okay, so yeah, some tracks where I just get, you know, 180 stems sent to me. Yeah. First thing I do is sit there and swear. <laughs> and try and reduce it down to a manageable amount of tracks because I just I can't deal with that many tracks in my head and I can't physically listen to it all if I've got a day or two you know dealing with 180 tracks is just insane so yeah generally things like backing vocals if they're across 18 tracks you know I'll I'll commit to a stereo pair and I'll keep the session where I've bounced them from so yeah. I can go back and uh, easily adjust it but I know that on my screen I've got the backing vocals are printed and quite often, same with drums, if I've kind of got compression going on that I like and stuff, I'll commit to it. So you do a lot of that old school... It sounds better to me. You don't running everything live. You're not running Try not to. Live. I mean, I do yeah. obviously a bit by the end, yeah. but... Yeah, of course. But I do, for some reason as well, the maths seems to work better on the computer when you've committed. I don't know why. So if I'm printing the drums as a stem, yeah. you know, that'll be going through maybe the stereo bus... There might not even be anything on it, but just the fact it's it's printed, I don't know why, seems to give it a bit more sort of width and depth and a bit more 3D-ness running it from stems as opposed to what all live. What program do you use? I use Logic, but I found it in all. Well, I found it in, I find it in, every, find it all. in all of them, yeah. And do you monitor loudly? Because obviously dance music or electronic music... I do, yeah. And are you constantly loud or are you... No, sort of short sharp bursts although I'm sure most people that work me would disagree and say it's loud all the time but <laughs> yeah initially if I'm sort of working on a track and you need to get that initial sort of response to it I'll, I'll have it quite loud and try and get excited by it and then when I'm sort of doing more technical stuff later on like you know revisions of levels and yeah. tweaks and stuff I probably wouldn't be blasting it well you just sort of keep it fairly sensible yeah I mean obviously you know in here I've got SM9 so they're they're kind of loud, but they're not ridiculous. As opposed to, you know, when you go in big studios with big soffit-mounted wall speakers. Yeah, but there's something quite nice about that. There them, is, isn't but, there? yeah, you know. <laughs> Those these speakers at Cog. They were amazing. They were amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm forever blowing up NS10s, so at Tom's studio there is literally a... There's a really long curtain rail above a door, and there's about <laughs> 24 NS10 cones on there. Well, the, the the bottom end, the, the yeah, because oh, wow, they wow. just they just you did you know. well. Well, you know that is over about twenty years, to be fair. But, um, yeah, but, yeah, that's, I mean, but they, you know, they tend to. I suppose they they just tend to go because they're paper and they're not yeah. that tough. Speakers like this are fine, but side chaining. Do you uh -huh. use it? Yeah. What What do you use it for? What do you use it on? Loads of things. Um, Can you give you mean analog or in the computer? Or whatever mixing bass. Yep. Bass definitely, yeah, all the time on bass now. Uh, particularly with there's a really good little plugin called what's it called? I'll tell you in a minute. But that side chains and allows you to 
sort of just side chain whatever frequency okay. selection you want so it's got a high pass and a low pass and an amount and you can literally just take out everything below 40 hertz on the bass when the kick hits so i find that kind of side chaining quite useful well you can't really hear it but you can definitely feel that it makes a difference yeah so for gives you a bit more space in the mix gives you much more space and on vocals and guitars and synths and stuff it's Something like Soothe is quite, although that's not side chaining, but it's a multi band sort of. That's that new, new, yeah, it's quite good. The blue one, is that the blue one? Yeah, it's good. It, it, it seems to do this sort of thing where it, uh, you don't lose all the sort of presence, but it definitely calms it down a bit if it's a bit, bit gnarly. What, the vocals? Vocals or groups of synths and stuff or okay. guitars. Yeah. yeah, particularly sort of mid range stuff. But definitely, yeah, side chaining, but more just certain frequencies rather than than everything. Okay. So you're not really aware. So you're of not it. compressing the whole mix from the kick. Sometimes, obviously, depends if that's what yeah feels right. I think there's two different ways of doing. It. You can either do it sort of with frequencies, so you're either sort of shaping sounds to work together where you don't use side chaining as much, or as sort of productions change now, where I find people have got a kick with a huge sub and a huge sub bass as well. Yeah. And you've got to make them fit together. That that kind of side chaining works really well for that. So although you're not really hearing it, it's definitely creating space in the low end for them to fit together. How do you approach compression? Again, just what feels right. No, no set approach. Depends where I am as well. If I'm in a room where there's Yuri's and things like that, then obviously they're lovely to use, and they they send the vocal down a really good path anyway, sound wise. Just plugging one of those in and doing. A little bit of tweaking on it it's already in a really good place yeah but i do find that some of the plug-in emulations are getting pretty good now on like the, the, any particular favorites yeah uad one the new arturia ones on the on the uris and stuff they're pretty good i mean obviously i i think most of them are like getting there none of there's none of them yet where you go yeah that's absolutely nailed it that's what i say is if, if you sort of add a bit more saturation or something into the chain generally you can get pretty close it's funny you know i think with with in the box mixing it's definitely a slightly different approach to mixing the record than if it's on a desk in what way what? just in terms of how the sounds work together i think they're a lot more uh, there's a lot more edge to them in in the digital domain yeah whereas sure. within like an ssl for instance you know you're already going through transformers and there's yeah. saturation happening even if it's just going through the channel so it's already Whereas, you know, you put it up on your computer and it's just, it's the raw signal, nothing, nothing, you know, nothing's happening to it unless you do something. Whereas I think within the desk, just the process of monitoring and having it going through the desk and the, and the mix bus and yeah. it does, it does magic stuff anyway. You don't like when you're mixing in the box, you don't like put a SSL channel on each, each track. I do, but I don't sort of do that thing of flavor. I do, but I don't do it as a default. Flavor. I sort of try and do it as i go dial it in dial it in and go right you know because i think yeah sometimes as well people um there are certain sounds where they don't really want you to change them much and then there are certain sounds where they do and it's yeah. i think it's just finding finding room to maneuver around those those things really the process of deciding what to do is is, is that's a really important part of it i think working out what you want to do is as important as doing it do you have a vision when you when you obviously you Sometimes, but no, sometimes if you turn up and you listen to a track, that's the whole thing. You're trying to sort of understand the track and enjoy it within yeah. the, within that time frame you have of mixing it. Because obviously if you just approach a mix in a technical way, it's not really what you're being asked to do as a mix. You're sort of being asked to interpret it through your ears in a creative way that 
yeah. you think sounds good to your taste and hopefully they share that opinion so you might stick loads of delay on the vocal because you think it sounds cool for no other reason really other than you go oh, <laughs> i like that because yeah. it is it's all playing really and then you eventually settle with something that you like and you manipulate that as far as you can or yeah most often like times you do something like that and then you send it to the client or the artist and they're like yeah i, I really like that but can you dial it back a dial bit it or, back that's always yeah. the thing yeah what, what you know or if you've if you've gone mad with the drum side because it's great but can you just back it off so it's yeah it's very often that that well, process where are you more comfortable in the studio are you more comfortable just doing mixing on your own or do you like that collaboration like you do with the chemicals i like i like working with people in a room yeah i don't, I don't mind either depends on my uh depends on my sort of mindset i suppose sometimes <laughs> and some tracks you know you some tracks you're working on for days like there are some tracks where i spend days on them and there are other tracks where you get it in seven or eight hours you know so it, i think when you're like two or three days into a mix yeah it's quite often quite useful to have the ears of someone else there. Whereas if you've done it quite quickly and the response is immediate, you've sent it off to someone that night and emailed it to them and they're like, oh, I love it. Yeah. You're like, great. You know, and that, that it's just that thing of like drawing a, under, a line under it and going, right, well, that's now finished. Yeah. Like, like we said, there's a problem with that open-endedness of, yeah. the, of the laptop or the computer. I hate it's that. open-ended. I hate that, you know. I, I like, for me, I like having limited... Uh, resources on making a record in terms of not <coughs> tons of equipment. Like, I don't know how Tom copes in his studio. He's got so much gear, and for him it works brilliantly. But I just don't know how he uh, how he manages to sort of tune his thought process down to getting yeah. it finished. What's your favourite piece of equipment in the studio? Easy, AMS fifteen eighty S or DMX. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, the AMS fifteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. By Why? about a thousand percent. Why? Just because it's a box that I've used from day one, from day one, and it's always <laughs> amazed me what it does. Like still, I've just been working with someone called Sasha, and that we, you know, we got actually borrowed one from Tom, and that box is a big part of what we were doing. Can you explain that? Just taking vocal sound or just anything, drums or everything would sound brilliant for it because it's got, you know, it's got old converters, very early days converters, but they sound amazing. So yeah. even just running stuff through it. Or, you know, taking samples, because it's a harmoniser, you can go an octave up and an octave down, sticking some strings through it, an octave down, and it's just like, it just sounds awesome, man. Yeah. It's got an LFO on it, so you can do like weird stereo chorus and sort of undulation-y kind of weird wobbly delays. They've, just, they've managed to make one in the digital domain, have they? They, they haven't. They've, they've done the RMX, but yeah. no one's done that. And it, yeah, it's such a crunky, weird old box with so yeah. many idiosyncrasies that I'm not sure they could, you know. And it, you know, also does like a load of like early reflection stuff and stereo widening stuff that yeah. just sounds brilliant. Yeah, one used to do the plus minus. That's right. Five. I remember that on every mix. You yeah, know, you'd on the vocal, on the vocal, guitars, keyboards. Yeah, you know, anything that you wanted a bit wider. And it's still now, if I sort of, I still kind of emulate it within Logic with other plugins, because because it does that thing of like if you've got something in a mix where you kind of want to hear it more, but you don't necessarily want it to be louder stick it through something like that and it just i don't know it takes it out to the edges a bit and probably adding a bit of saturation and coloration and it just yeah sticks out the mix a bit more yeah same with saturation that seems to 
play a huge part in that as well I find yeah, sure I, I, I like saturation things like snares and stuff I sometimes use it more than compression though I definitely yeah but I think it's something back in the day was happening and we didn't even realise yeah, you know, the process of going through the neve onto yeah. tape back off tape yeah. through the SSL there was a certain amount of yeah. colouration and saturation happening without you even being aware of it no in those days they weren't worried about levels too much in the 70s and, and stuff maybe in the 80s onwards people got technical things driving and you know definitely i mean i you know i remember a lot of people just you're never really having separate preamps or yeah like it was that you were using the desk yeah so if you were recording vocals or drum you were recording through the desk whatever that desk was if it was an ssl or an eve if you're lucky enough or a mackie or yeah. and i never ever felt fuck i can't do this vocal because i've got a mackie to record it through yeah that's right he's just like well no that's what i'm going to do i'm going to record and you go that's great yeah and then you even end up mixing the record on a really good desk and you play oh yeah we recorded that through a Mackie preamp that vocal yeah it sounded decent yeah. it sounded fine I mean yeah. I, I just think well, that's East Coast used to have the Mackie didn't they yeah East Coast Studios used to have a Mackie desk in there and loads of people made amazing records for yeah that. I think yeah. it's a very much a bit of a, a current myth is that uh, you need like loads of bespoke expensive preamps to make a decent recording yeah it's more about the room and what's happening in a room for me yeah sure I, you know, I even I work with a guy called Ali Love, and he brings me vocals all the time that he's recorded at four in the morning on his laptop, and they sound. On his microphone. No, just on the laptop. Just mic. on the laptop mic. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And it's an amazing performance. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, and you can always make it work. Generally, you know that idea of right, go and do that in a booth with some headphones and expecting it to come anywhere close. It, it really generally doesn't. Yeah, that's so true. What things do you try to avoid? In the studio, Ooh, guess pontification too much, and dwelling on the same idea too long sometimes. Okay, if you're sort of hit up with the vocal effect, sometimes actually mixing the drums so they sound good means you then approach everything else in a different way. So I suppose finding where the energy of the track is coming from. Well, I guess How can like you find me, where I, the energy of the track is coming from. I guess like me, I, I, you know, I, I suppose I work in a, a certain genre of electronic kind of club music. So generally, it's drums and groove driven. So yeah. I guess my focus would normally start with that. You know, very often with the chems, we're trying to make the track sound as good as we can as a sort of instrumental record, and then we put all the vocals and the samples on afterwards. Make sure it works really well as an instrumental track first. And also that thing of trying to make a mix that's going to sound good on a laptop, a pair of speakers, and, you know, on a massive P8 Glastonbury or something. Do they take it out to the clubs a lot? Yeah, they always they road, road test stuff. They road test and that's, working with someone that does that is really, really useful. So, like, working on a mix, someone going off, playing in Italy that night, and then texting you back going, yeah, it sounds great. Got but. a couple of tweaks. <laughs> yeah. Turn the bass up. Yeah. I guess just sort of finding that, point where you think it should sort of work from the track whether it's the drums or the bass or it's enjoying listening to the track i think so like trying to work on things that you like is i think is a really important part of it yeah and you try to avoid not working on things you like or don't like sorry yeah wherever possible yeah i think uh from early days in conk i used to sit there assisting i just remember thinking oh i'm really enjoying working on this track and then other tracks where you weren't so into the vibe it would seem like a really long day you know yeah. and you're like that oh, yeah no, I, I need to not work on this pop music if i'm going to sort of do this as a career yeah. or whatever you know whatever it was you weren't enjoying about the thing 
Well, you've managed to do that pretty well, haven't you, over the last... But sometimes, yeah, sometimes you get it right. Yeah, yeah. it's like... Uh, but it's all it's all just playing for me. It's never... never Even today? Yeah, still feel like I'm just mucking about. Yeah. And that's why I think sometimes in a, social, in a more social situation, it's almost like you're showing... Not showing, but like, you know, playing with your mates. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, of course, just, yeah. Just having fun. Having a laugh. Like, wow, you know, and... and Someone like uh, Tom and Ed, you know, they're buying lots of interesting old equipment and there's lots of old gear coming through the studio. So get some like mad, I don't know, what, what, something last thing he bought that was mental was this Grampian uh, like amp sort of echo, uh, amp spring reverb thing. Yeah. But it just sounds mental. Like it's got the amazing distortion, sort of saturation. So you just quite often we'll set something like that up and, and if we're working on an album there'll be like eight tracks or ten tracks on the go yeah. and we'll be like alright let's put those drums through that and see what that sounds like yeah. and then record it anyway and then further down the line yeah, you start Tom, to weed out Tom does so many arrangements on things you know he'll often have about 12 14 arrangements on the go on a track on one screen so he's got like a, one song that's about 3,000 bars long with an arrangement, 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 and he can grab sections from any arrangement. It's really interesting, yeah. Rather than going, right, I've done an arrangement, and then tweaking that, he'll do an arrangement and then do another another be all completely different versions with different sections, yeah. and they'll both live with them. That's very much a part of it. Ed, Ed has a slightly more uh, peripheral view, I think, because he's very involved but not such a technician as Tom and he's able to sort of have that periphery I think which is really important yeah. so he'll sure. go oh no I really like that version and just it's good That I think that's important within those situations that if everyone's trying to get on a computer and stuff it just yeah. gets too bogged down in technical sort of drudgery yeah for sure and it doesn't whereas if somebody's actually sitting there enjoying a track it's a really valid viewpoint to listen to because well, that's the old school producer isn't it yeah. The guy sitting on the sofa. Who doesn't necessarily do stuff that's yeah. technical, but he's yeah. just coercing Guide, the room. Guiding the, the environment. And, yeah. and that's a big part of it. Like I think learning that sometimes it's not what you do technically that sort of validates what you do. It's just how you sort of act and deal with the people in the room and yeah. get the situation out of it. And yeah, again, just talking and discussing ideas. And yeah, yeah I think that can, especially with bands, that can have a massive effect on how the record sounds. If somebody's sort of heard a song with a band and they've got a vision on it and they can iterate that through sort of discussions and stuff. You hear about so many sort of classic records that started out as one thing and became something else. Yeah, Just because of the producer went, well, why don't, you do a, why don't you do a reggae version of this? Or it's a reggae track, can we do it like a new wave pop track? And yeah. that sort of ends up defining what the record is. Yeah, and lo and behold, it's, it's the great idea that mm. sort of materialises. yeah. And it's, I think it's, I suppose as well, it's being in a, in a position as well where you can actually carry that forwards. Because obviously everybody, whether you're an assistant or a producer or anywhere in between, when you're sitting in a room listening to music, you have a, a response to it in your brain, which I suppose, whatever it is, a vision or an idea or... And, and that, that's, I think that's the key to it really, is if you hear something and you can hear a way of doing it, that's, that's, that's exactly what it's about really. Yeah. Whereas if you're listening to something and going, well, I don't really feel anything and you don't have a response, then it's pointless. But if you're hearing a piece of music and you're excited by it and you can hear it doing something. That's what it's all about. Yeah, some of those more extreme, like um, Chemical Brothers sort of grooves, like uh, Under the Influence or oh, It yeah? Doesn't Matter or stuff. Yeah. You know, they, 
they definitely come about through being in a room with a big set of speakers and turning it up and kind of going fucking hell and like seeing what you can do to the bass drum yeah. you know, where can you take that one sound yeah. and you end up with it across seven tracks going through distortions amps compressors yeah. six different eqs are you quite are you quite radical with your movements in that situation or is it are you very slowly adjusting stuff or are you being quite brutal and just going ah bosh, yeah, quite, bosh. quite brutal and, and just, you know yeah see where it goes big sort of brush strokes yeah at first. big brush strokes yeah and then once you've got something that everyone's agreeing they're enjoying then you yeah. go down to the sort of more detailed approach finessing it down and, and really shaping it but sometimes the records like that the more you know you you get the sort of mad mix that's a bit naughty and then once you refine it you're like actually it's lost all that it's it goes back chaos. to that, that thing we said at the start where the stereo out sounds better than the, the split up or when the vocals yeah too loud or panned hard left you're like yeah. wait it just sounds cool like that so, yeah 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 not what, like moving beyond what's technically correct sometimes yeah which i think is quite uh as you say you were saying earlier like if things are distorting like can you hear it distorting yeah exactly, if you can't yeah. does it sound okay and even if you can hear it distorting is that what you like but in an unpleasant it? way you know yeah. well the un- unpleasant is wrong but pleasant is always nice if it's working and equally some people do things that you know, somebody in the room might go, I'm not sure that's right, but then you hear it and you're like, in the context and you go, yeah, actually that works really well. Yeah. Whatever you did there, I can't think of a, an example offhand, but, sure. you know, they're, they're, there's definitely lots of records, I think, where people were just through boredom as well, <laughs> trying to find, almost trying to sort of wake themselves up with a sort of yeah. foolish, crazy idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then you do it, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, yeah. The alchemy of it, the magic of it sometimes, you don't need to overanalyze it. You shouldn't, should you? you no, shouldn't I the overanalyze guy, it. I work with a guy called Errol Alcan sometimes, and yeah, he's, very yeah. mu- he's very much into that, the alchemy of just it. Just the, the wildness of the Just story. like, I don't know why it sounds cool, but don't even analyze it, just do it. Just go move forwards with it. You, yeah. know, it's, you know, you have a creative urge, and you just it's like a response to that and trying to make things exciting to you. Yeah. For me, that's the essence of what a mix is, is trying to make it exciting and then you know i do that thing quite often of uh switching between you know, always sort of reference the, the reference or the demo mix or yeah. the other mix or whatever yeah. and always hope that you're yeah it's different it's weird isn't it it's a really weird thing to say it's better because it's just different but obviously there are classic things i suppose that people would perceive as better like more definition or more width on things or clarity but then sometimes actually the version where the vocal is murky and a bit yeah. weird is so i think it's quite good to be mindful of that as well yeah sure. definitely with a demo mix or a reference mix that people have lived with for four months that's always going to play a part isn't it on the perception of what you do definitely that, that and like new, that new just idea. not listening to that it seems yeah. madness to me because yeah, somebody spent sure. four months creating it yeah. yeah like someone like ali you know he'll he'll send you a reference mix that will have very very precise sort of vocal balances and he'll you know he's someone that does lots and lots and lots of harmonies and tracking and stuff and he's definitely got a like very clear idea of where they sit and how they work so obviously apart from you know a bit of eq and re- whatever you do to them but that you know try and retain that balance yeah if you step out of that they, they instantly go no you need to listen to the reference mix so I even do to, that yeah with with mixes now i might try and make the drum sound better yeah that's why I like doing it as sort of more object based. I'll have my drums, my you know, my my yeah. my ten stems at the end, and then 
I'll go back to the reference mix and 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 sort of definitely reference that balance, even if the keyboards have got a load of chorus on them and they're brighter. Still trying to sort of balance them within the same space as they were within that reference mix as much as possible. Steve, thank you so much for coming. Nice one. Nice yeah. to talk to you. Great to see you again. Nice to see you after all these years. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Thanks very sir. much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Mix Bus with me, Kevin Paul. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the whole series on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to join me for the next episode and until then, Goodbye.